0: Hey, this is Kenan Clark. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of my podcast. I really do believe it is gonna bless you and leave you better than it found you. And I wanted to ask if this ministry has blessed you at all, would you prayerfully consider becoming one of our ministry partners? Our overall ministry, not just the podcast, but our overall ministry would not be possible if it weren't for the generosity of people who believe in it would you prayerfully consider becoming one of our monthly ministry partners? If you'd like to partner with us financially, there is a link in the show notes. Just go down to the show notes, tap the link. You can give as little or as much as the Spirit leads you to, but we are so thankful for your seed that you are sowing into this good ground. But hey, here's this episode of the podcast. Hey, are you guys ready for the word? You guys ready for the word? Hey, um, do it. I'm going to give you a slight disclaimer tonight. Slight disclaimer. Um, tonight, I really felt led to teach. I really felt led to teach tonight. And there's two reasons. I want to teach on faith tonight. Come on. Somebody said amen. It's like I struck a nerve. I struck a nerve. I'm going to teach on faith tonight. There's two reasons. The first reason is because I think if we are going to be people who do what the Bible says, which the Bible says this, that the just shall live by faith. That if we are going to live by faith, the Bible also says this, that we walk by faith and not by sight. If faith is how we live this life with God, I honestly think it doesn't just need to be a little seasoning that we sprinkle into a few sermons. I honestly think we need to do a bit of a deep dive, a bit of a teaching into what faith actually is. Can I be honest with you? I'm not interested in creating a season where you can follow Jesus while you're in college. I'm not interested in just stoking your fire so that when you look back on your college years, you can go, wow, I went to church and I I heard some good sermons and I raised my hands during worship one time. I want it to be that this season sets you up to shake the gates of hell in every season that you walk into. Long after you have quit coming to young adults because God has taken you into a new chapter and a new season, I still want you walking by faith. Long after these moments are gone, I want that faith to remain. And I honestly think one of the ways that we can make sure that that happens is if we do some intentional teaching around these ideas. And the second reason is this, is this is what I'm teaching in our celebration college, okay, and I just honestly wanted to give you a bit of an appetizer as to what celebration college is like. If you didn't know, we have a full blown accredited college here at Celebration Church. We partnered with Southeastern University that you can do your entire, you can literally get your degree through there. Um, but we're also teaching people theology. We meet on Monday nights at six thirty. It's a two hour commitment, and tonight you're all trapped because I'm gonna give you a little bit of an appetizer. So I'm teaching on faith tonight. And so I'm teaching, but I'll be honest with you, I am a preacher, so I will preach as I teach. Is that okay? So this is gonna be a bit of a hybrid deal here. So I'm gonna teach, but I'm gonna preach. With that in mind, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, we'll start reading at verse eight. Read two verses of scripture. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. This was written by the apostle Paul. For a moment, just so you know, I'm gonna treat you like college students tonight, okay? I'm gonna actually treat you like you're capable of rubbing two brain cells together at least and learning something, okay? I know you're smarter than I. So if I can ascertain these things, so can you, all right? Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. The apostle Paul wrote this to this this church in a city called Ephesus. He says this, for it is by... Grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves or from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul is talking about, the apostle Paul is talking about how you and I, if you and I are both saved, how we got saved. Now, I'm not gonna make any assumptions in here tonight. I'm not under the impression that everybody under the sound of my voice, both in this room and online, is in fact saved. But if you are saved tonight, the Apostle Paul would like you to know how that transpired. The Apostle Paul would like you to know how your salvation came about. And he gives us two things. The first thing he says is it was by grace. You are saved By grace, and I think if you've grown up in church for any length of time and you were to ask, hey, what saved me? Most people would say, the grace of God, brother. (laughs) The grace of God is what saved me. Most of us, when we think of salvation, the only word we would bring to it is grace, and it's because grace is a big deal. Grace is what saved us. It is by grace that you are saved. But notice, Paul doesn't say, it is by, for it is by grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. He doesn't say that. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. I think a lot of us begin to get a little bit weird when we begin to think about the fact that our faith had something to do with the fact that we got saved. But nonetheless, The apostle Paul here would like us to know salvation cannot occur without faith being an integral part. It is not just the grace of God. It is the grace of God, but it's not just the grace of God. There's also an element of faith. I'm going to break this down for you in really simple terms. Grace is God's hand. Faith is your hand. Grace was God's hand being extended to you. It reached into your situation. It reached into your addiction. It reached into your blindness. It reached into your impairment and your impalement in sin. And it pulled you out and it placed your feet on solid ground. That's what the grace of God did. But guess what? Your hand had to grab onto that hand. And that's what faith is. Faith is you grabbing on and reaching back to the one who is reaching out to you. I hate to say it, but a relationship with God, which is what Jesus died to give us, by the way, not sure if you're aware of that, but Jesus died to not bring us into a religion, he died to bring us into a relationship and it wasn't with each other, it was ultimately first and foremost with him. Jesus died to bring us into relationship and last I checked, because I am in a very committed one, (laughs) a relationship is a two-way street. Relationships take two agreeing people. You know what we call people who are in a relationship where only one party agrees? We call that person being stalked. I'm in a relationship, but I don't wanna be, okay? You have a stalker, okay? A relationship with God, listen to me, what I'm trying to tell you is a relationship with God. It takes you agreeing with God. You saying, God, I'm willing to grab back. God, I'm willing to hold on to what you have extended to me. I love the way 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20 says this. It paints this picture for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says this. Become friends with God. He is already a friend with you. The apostle Paul, who also wrote this verse, is trying to get you to understand, hey, um, God's already made up his mind about you. Some of you, you think the jury's still out on how God feels about you. Does God love me? Does God wanna bless me? Does God wanna prosper me? Does God wanna open doors for me? Does God love me? The answer is yes. The jury is not still out on what God thinks about you. He wrote a whole daggum book to communicate his thoughts towards you. Your problem is you don't read it. That's your problem. The reason you are so easily convinced of everything the enemy wants to convince you of is because you have not read this thing, or it's been a minute since you did. It's one thing for God to feel something about you. It's a whole nother thing for you to grab on to what he has already given. This is really saying, God has already sent the invitation. It's up to you to accept it. God has extended himself to you, but he's a gentleman. He wants you to participate. You know, um, I've got a best friend in the world, which for some reason he ain't here tonight but his kid brother is, Bryson, is in the place. Jonathan Huffman is is one of my all-time best friends, long-time best friends. I was literally at his first birthday, and some of you may have even heard me tell this story, but just act like it's the first time you heard it. But Jonathan and I, we, we were in ninth grade, and Jonathan had eyes for this one girl. There was only one problem. She didn't go to our school, and she did not go to our church, which which literally meant she did not exist to us. Okay, I'll be honest with you. If you didn't go to our school and you didn't go to our church, you were not available. Those were the two ponds we were fishing in, okay? And this girl was not in either, okay? But nonetheless, Jonathan, in his ninth grade adolescent years, he he had eyes for this one girl. And he was not gonna let her not going to our church and not going to our, our school stop him. So he finds her on Facebook and he's like, Kenan, what do I do? Do I message her? Like, what do I do? I said, dude, send her a friend request, bro, Bruh. Send her friend requests, okay? He says, all right, and he moves the little mouse before we had touch screens and all that fun stuff. He moves the little mouse. You guys know what I'm talking about. Okay, cool. He moves the little mouse over there and he clicks send friend request. And so we go on with our lives. We come back the next day to see what has happened with this friend request. And how many of you know, when you send someone a friend request and they haven't accepted it yet, it says friend request pending, right? This did not say friend request pending. This said send friend Request. How many of you know that means she straight up declined that Facebook friend request? She's not even going to be like, I'm going to leave you in the queue. She's like, I don't want you. Bam. Okay, easy. Bad profile pic, my dude. Bad profile pic. Gnarly. So she declined it. And Jonathan is ready to be a man of God and take the L on the chin and move on with his life. And Jonathan's like, I guess this isn't God's will. I said, excuse me? Send it again. (laughs) He said, what? I said, send again it again. I said, believe me, I know women. She's playing hard to get. She is playing hard. She wants to be chased. She wants you to chase her. Okay. I said, send that friend request again. He said, all right. And he sent the friend request again. We go on with our lives. We come back the next day to see what she has done with this friend request. It says, send friend request." She declined it again. And Jonathan, in almost tears, is sitting there. He cannot take being denied, rejected yet again. And I said, send it again. He said, Kena, what? I said, send that dang thing again. You may be delayed, but you will not be denied in Jesus' name. Started preaching to him right there in the ninth grade. Amen, brother. So Jonathan sends it again, right? We come back the next day. It says send friend request. We literally do this for seven days. Seven days. We go back and forth, sending her a friend request. She declines it. Sending her a friend request. She declines it. And it was on day seven. Jonathan finally looked at me and he said, Keenan, I think we're starting to look a little desperate. And I said, dude, we passed desperate six days ago. Okay. And guess whose face is not, and guess whose face is not associated with this account? Mine! (laughs) You look desperate! (laughs) And it was in that moment we decided to throw her back into the sea and let her swim away. And Jonathan just counted it as a loss. But the whole reason I tell you that story is because I think it paints a stark picture of this. It was not gonna be until she on the other end accepted what had been sent, that things were gonna be able to move in any kind of direction. And I came here to tell somebody tonight, that is what God's looking for. Jesus has already died on the cross. It's already done. He's already resurrected. He's already paid for your place in heaven. The only question is, will you accept it? The grace has been extended. The only question is, will the faith be extended? Will you reach back out to the one who is reaching out to you and say, God, I'll let you pull me out of this place. God, I'm willing to set aside my pride. I'm willing to set aside my my fame, my acclaim, my notoriety, my reputation in order for you to actually meet me where I actually am. Grace is God, God's hand, but faith is our hand, and it takes two to tango. It takes two for everything this relationship with God is called to be for it to actually be. And tonight, I told you I'm gonna teach you a little bit, so I wanna, I wanna show you in the original language what this word faith means. Did you know that faith, uh, excuse me, the Bible was not written in English? I may have just popped a big bubble for you right there. Okay you're like, what? Okay. The Bible was not originally written in English. It was translated into English to make it easy for English speaking people to connect with the word of God. The original Bible was, cre- was written in multiple languages. The language, the verse we read a moment ago, Ephesians chapter two, was originally written in Greek. So this word faith, hey, thank you, Karis. This word, this word faith was not the English word faith when it was originally written. It was the Greek word for faith, which is the word pistis, pistis. Pistis literally means the conviction of the truth of anything or a belief. Notice the very first word in the definition for faith, conviction. And here's what I have found. I have found that so many of us cannot step into real faith because, because rather than allowing conviction to guide our faith, we keep allowing condemnation to gut our faith. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. They do not have the same definition. There is a stark and real difference between the conviction of God and the condemnation that comes along with sin, shame, and a guilty conscience. Conviction, I like to define it as the convincing of God. The conviction of God is when God begins to convince you. God is saying, hey, 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 my ways, they're higher than your ways. My thoughts, they're higher than your thoughts. My plans are infinitely better than your plans. Conviction is when God gets a hold of your heart and he begins to convince you. And some of you, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, there's been times where your heart was gripped by a sense of conviction and conviction is, is the breeding ground for faith. But for many of us, we never get to step into a place of conviction because we keep finding ourselves in condemnation. And condemnation only comes, listen to me, it only comes from the devil condemnation is not one of the tools God uses in his arsenal. God, when he looks at his little tool bag and his little tool belt, he will find no condemnation available. God will never condemn you. God does not sit there when you sin and say, are you kidding me? How dare you? I can't believe you did it again. I'm embarrassed of you. You're an insult to the body of Christ. You should be ashamed of yourself. That is never God's language. That language only ever comes from the condemner, from the accuser. You know the name Satan is actually not a name? Did you know that? It's not his name, it's his title. That would be like saying chef was somebody's name. It's not their name, it's their occupation and it is their title. The devil's title is Satan, the Satan. You know what it means? It means the accuser. The accuser. That is his literal title. And that is ultimately the name, the thing we have given to him as his name is the very thing he does. He accuses you. He is constantly whispering in your ear accusations, trying to lead you further and further and further away from the voice of conviction. But so many times we can't step into conviction because we're too busy wallowing in condemnation. Do you feel condemned tonight? I want you to know you don't have to experience another moment of that. We don't have this verse on the screen because I didn't think about it, but the Lord just brought it to my heart. Romans chapter eight and verse one says this, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is your license if you have put your faith in Jesus. You never have to feel condemned another moment in your life. Listen to me. Jesus was already condemned for that sin. Why do you need to be? Why should two people pay for that crime? Jesus already paid for it. Why should you sit there and walk yourself to the proverbial whipping post again to self-mutilate and beat yourself up and wallow in your sin and your shame? That's condemnation. God doesn't lead us with that. And condemnation never produces faith, but conviction will produce faith. And I'm here to tell you right now, I have not given up on this generation. I've not given up on my generation. I'm not here to talk like I'm like that much older than you. I'll be 28 in two months, okay? I'm not some old man, all right? But I have not given up on us. Listen to me, I've not given up on us. I believe that the title is gonna change. I believe that the narrative is about to shift, that this generation, our generation, is gonna be a generation known for conviction. People who didn't say one thing and live another behind closed doors. I think that is what the world needs to see. It's not men who just know how to talk the talk and be good on a stage. The last thing I ever wanna be is a great preacher and a horrible man. I want it to be that the people who know, who have the least great things to say about me heard my sermons and the people who had the best things to say about me got to rub elbows with me in real life. And that is where conviction will lead you. Not to a place of duplicity and not to a place where you live a double life. We are this way in church and that way on Saturday. And I'm not here to condemn anybody, but you know you are not living in conviction if you're living in duplicity if you're living a double life. The Bible says this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. God doesn't want you to be double-minded. And some of you, your double-mindedness is this. You can't can't figure out if you're saved or if you're still a sinner. Am I saved or am I a sinner? You believe both are true. Guess what that's called being? Double-minded. No wonder you're unstable. You keep acting like a saint over here, but a sinner over here because you're double-minded. So therefore you are unstable in all your ways. You haven't gotten your identity straightened out yet. Being a sinner is one thing. Being saved by grace makes you something completely different. And though I may sin, I do not identify with my sin. I recognize that as a rogue action. That is an alien force trying to remind me of a dead person I used to be. I need to remember who I am in Christ. I no longer have to play the chameleon. I no longer have to be this nice, weird camouflage for the world around me. I can stand tall in who God has created me to be. I'm not gonna be double-minded and unstable. And when you actually begin to get into that place of conviction, I'm telling you that double-mindedness, it'll straighten itself out. But pistis is this idea. Faith is this idea of conviction. And notice what it was after that, a belief. The last portion of that definition was a belief. I wanna tell you tonight, what you believe to be true about you is the most important thing about you. What you believe is the most important thing, regardless of what school you graduate from, what family you hail from, what side of the tracks you were born on, what what economic bracket you fall under, what tax bracket you fall under, however many letters come after your name. More important than any of those things, what you believe is the most important thing about you. Identity drives every facet of who you are, which is why faith has to begin to inform your identity your faith has to inform your identity. What you believe about you is the most important thing about you. I want to ask you this. Does you believing the truth make the truth right? Or does you believing the truth make you right? If you said B, you're right. Okay. Option B. You believe, listen to me, you believing the truth does not change the truth. It wasn't like all of a sudden the truth wasn't true and now you believe it, so now it's true. The truth is always true. Here's the crazy thing about truth. Truth does not need you to believe it is true in order to remain true. But you need to believe the truth in order to be right. When you believe the truth, it makes you right, not the truth. The truth is always right. It changes you. In the same way, when you put your faith in Jesus, it doesn't make Jesus right, it makes you right. I'll take it a, a theological step further. It not only makes you right, listen to me, it makes you righteous. Righteous. Some of you, I just hit a nerve, man, a theological nerve. You mean to tell me I'm righteous just because I believe in Jesus? Um, that's what the Bible says. <laughs> The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Go read all of 2 Corinthians chapter five. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the crazy thing about every other world religion. Here it is. Here's what makes us completely different. Every other world religion tells its followers, you need to achieve righteousness. That's exactly, it's serious, serious. They tell all their followers, you need to achieve righteousness. Righteousness is something you can't achieve. Righteousness is some little weird spiritual ladder that you can climb up. And one day, if you live righteously enough, you might be actually deemed and identified as righteous. Here's the crazy thing. And here's where Christianity flips the whole narrative on its head. Christianity doesn't say you can achieve righteousness. Christianity says you can't achieve righteousness. So the way you become righteousness, the way you become righteous is not by achieving, it's by believing and receiving. It's by believing and receiving. Listen to me, righteousness cannot be achieved, it is simply received. You've got to receive the righteousness of Christ and it only comes one way, by faith. The only way righteousness can come, the only way righteousness can be produced in your life is one way, and it is by faith in the achievement of Christ in what Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement has achieved for you. Now, how would this inform your identity? How would this change the way you relate with God if you were to stop trying and aspiring to achieve righteousness? Which righteousness, listen to me, let me break it down, is simply right standing with God. And all of a sudden you were to stop aspiring to achieve it. God, can I I hope I can one day earn enough merit badges that I can work up to be to being known as righteous and you were to simply understand, no, Jesus, he achieved righteousness. And now all you have to do is believe it and receive it. That's the power of the gospel is that you can't achieve it, Jesus did it for you, and now you simply receive it. You receive it by faith. I wanna go to, just to prove this point, I wanna go to, excuse me, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. If not, we got it for you on the screen. Before I I read it, I wanna kinda break down what is going on in this moment. In this moment, we've got a guy by the name of Abram. Some of you would know him by the name of Abraham. His his name is later changed to Abraham. And the kicker here is the name Abram means father. It means father. And the crazy thing about Abram in this moment is he ain't got no kids. Abram in this moment is childless and yet he still has to walk around introducing himself as father. How embarrassing is that? Having to introduce yourself, listen to me, having to introduce yourself as something you know you're not. And that's where many Christians are. Introducing themselves as something they don't truly actually feel like they are. What an awkward place to live. And God knows that this is no fun. So all of a sudden, God meets Abram one night and he begins to speak to him in a tent and God begins to convince Abram that His, he's gonna one day have kids and not just a few kids, but he's gonna have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you can imagine Abram's having a hard time with this. By this point, he is an old man, an old man. So this is borderline a joke. If you read the Bible to his wife, this was actually a joke. She quite literally laughed over this idea that they were gonna have kids together. That's a confidence boost. Your wife hearing, I'm gonna give you kids. Ha! (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it for you. So all of a sudden, God meets Abram in this tent and God says, Abram, I can see you're having a hard time with this. Follow me. And they walk outside the tent. And all of a sudden, God says this, Abram, look in the sky and look at all the stars in the sky and see if you can count them all. See if you can count them. And Abram can't count them. Obviously, there's numerous, it's it's thousands of millions, it's billions of stars in the sky. And God looks at Abram and says, so shall your descendants be. Genesis 15, six says this. And Abram, he believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to him as righteous and the Lord accounted it to him as righteousness. So all of a sudden God is sitting there talking to Abram and Abram, all he does is believe what God is saying. And God says, bam, that just made you righteous." This is the very first time, listen to me, this is the very first time in the entire Bible, the whole thing, that a human being, you're fine, Michael, it's okay. Just sit there and listen, it's all good, buddy. Just take it in, let God speak to you. This is the very first time in all the scriptures and all the Bible that any human being is deemed righteous by God. So we can kind of, we have to imagine what was this moment like? All of a sudden, we we see it on paper, and it's, a one, it's one sentence. It's easy to glaze by. It's easy to blaze through. But what was this moment like in heaven? The very first time a human being is deemed righteous, what is that moment like? I can imagine God's up in heaven, sitting there chilling with the angels, and all of a sudden, ping, this thing like pops into heaven that Abram sent up. What did Abram send up? He sent up faith. And I can imagine all of a sudden God grabs it and God's looking at it, and he calls over to his CPAA, his Certified Public Accounting Angel. Okay. His, it, it, yeah, there you go. These, I got jokes for days. Okay. He calls over to his accountant, his accounting angel, his CPAA, and he says, Hey, um, I need you to find Abram's name in that book over there, and I need you to write next to it, righteous. The crazy thing is, in that verse that I just showed you, it, and God accounted it to him as righteousness. That word accounted is an accounting term. In in the Hebrew language, it literally speaks of putting it in a book, of writing it in a registry. All of a sudden, God says, hey, um, I need you to write next to a guy named Abram's name, Righteous. You can imagine the CPAA starts to freak out. What, you want me to write what? Next to his name, all of a sudden, the CPAA is geeking out, right? All of a sudden, he or she or whatever angels are, okay? They like is juggling the book and all of a sudden he opens it up because no one had ever been deemed righteous. The, 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 this angel has never written righteous next to anyone's name. And God says, find Abram. Should be easy to find. It's towards the front, A, B. All of a sudden, the angel's flipping through, finds Abram. And as they go to write righteous, they go, huh, wait a second. I've actually never spelled righteous before. Can, can I see what you got in your hand there so I know how to spell it? And all of a sudden, God opens his hand and what did Abram send up? Faith. God's holding faith in his hand. I can imagine that CPAA says, excuse me, Lord, I am a certified public accounting angel. My records are public knowledge. I can only write in the book what you've got in your hand. If you've got $7, I can write $7 in the book. If you've got $12, I can write $12 in the book. If you got got $100, I can write $100 in the book. If you got $6, I can write $6 in the book. If you got half a dozen dollars, I can still write $6 because six and a half a dozen are the same thing. But I cannot write in this book what you don't have in your hand. And in your hand is faith, and you are telling me to write righteous. But you know what? You're God, and what you say goes. I'm not here to argue with you, sir. So if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to write this in this book, this eternal book, I need to hear it out of your mouth that faith not will one day grow up to be righteousness. Not faith resembles righteousness. But I need to hear it out of your mouth that faith is righteousness. And would you believe, guess what got written in that book? Righteous. Because according to God, listen to me, my friends, faith is righteousness. Faith is not the, it's not potential righteousness. It's not hope if it gets a little bit more spiritual vitamin D and a little bit more spiritual H2O, it will grow up to become righteousness. Listen to me, faith is righteousness. When we put our faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that is what makes us right. You are not waiting to get to the end of your life to hear how you've done. Because it's not about how you've done. It's about how well do you believe Jesus did? How well do you believe Jesus performed? How well do you believe Jesus followed the instructions? How well do you believe Jesus obeyed? You believe he was perfect? Do you believe that counts for you? Then guess what? You are righteous. And some of you are like, well, that's not very fair. That's why it's called grace. If it were fair, it couldn't be called grace. No, it's not fair. It's not fair that all we gotta do is believe God and we become righteous. That you can live the rest of your life a dirty, rotten scoundrel and yet still in the eyes of God, you're deemed righteous. Now, if you decide to live your life as a dirty, rotten scoundrel after giving your faith and putting your faith in Jesus, I would question the validity of that faith because James says that faith without works is dead. We ought to see some fruit by the faith, but it's not our fruit that makes us righteous. It's our faith that makes us righteous. And that's the thing we've got to shift. Faith is righteousness. And I can hear some people go, well, what about the law, Kenan? Guess what? This moment predates the law. It predates the law that God gave to Moses. You know, the 613 unending, unbending rules. Some of you only know the 10 commandments, okay? The Ten Commandments were part of that. But there was also 613 rigorous laws that God gave to the people. And you know why God gave it to them? So they would recognize they couldn't make themselves righteous. God gave them the law so they would recognize the only way I'm ever gonna be righteous is if God intervenes. Is if God steps in and guess what? He's not only stepped in, but he stepped into human skin. He put on flesh and bone. He came and lived as a man and he died as you should have died. So he can now stand here and offer you the life only he should get to enjoy. And if you will just put your faith in that, you shall be saved. That's the gospel. Don't let anyone ever get it twisted. It's not how many Hail Marys and how many Our Fathers have you said, okay, well, then you're good enough. It's a load of crap. It's a load of religious crap. It's it's a doctrine of demons. It's leading you to hell in a handbasket. It is literally getting you to put your faith in something other than the finished work of Jesus. I'm gonna slaughter a sacred cow right now. You don't need to be praying to Mary. I don't know who needs to hear this. Some of y'all maybe never coming back, but not one place in the Bible are you gonna find that the Bible says, yeah, you need to go to Mary. Last I checked, Jesus is our mediator, not Mary. Mary was a woman just like you and I that God used. She is no more special. Mary does not have any special powers, and in all honesty, The only thing you are praying to when you pray to anything other than Jesus himself is you are praying to something sinister, dark, and demonic because it's either Jesus or the other side. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. Praying to your dead relatives, not a good idea. Asking them to guide you, demonic. They're gone. They are in the presence of God. And I'm not saying that it doesn't hurt like hell. I'm not saying that it's not hard sometimes, but you don't gotta ask them for wisdom. They could barely figure their own life out. You gotta ask Jesus for wisdom. You ask Jesus for his spirit to empower you, to fill you with the knowledge of the Holy Spirit so that you can discern what is right and what's wrong. I know I am stepping on every single toe you got, but you need to hear the truth. Our faith has to be in Jesus. And here's the question. This is where I wanna begin to wind down. Why? Why is it that we can step out of sin and into the life God has for us by faith? How is that how it works? Why is that how it works? That we can step out of sin and into eternal life by faith? And the way I wanna take you in order to show you why this is this way is when we stepped into sin to begin with. When humanity stepped into sin for the very first time, Genesis chapter three. You understand we only get two good chapters in the Bible and then we screw it up? Genesis one, Genesis two. And here's the the kicker. Man doesn't show up until Genesis two. So we got one chapter. We were introduced in chapter two and we blew it all to smithereens in chapter three. We got issues. So all of a sudden we darken the doorstep of Genesis chapter three. And I'll read it to you, this is what it says. Genesis chapter three, verse one says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, listen to what she said. We may eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I'm gonna pause here. I'm gonna go on for, in just a moment, I'm gonna pause here. Notice what she said, that God said. God says, we aren't supposed to eat of it and we're not even supposed to touch it or we'll die. I'm gonna let you in on a little something. God never told them they couldn't touch it. Go and read the rest of it. Go and read Genesis chapter two when God has given them these instructions. God never said you can't touch it. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then they, in their fear of what might happen, added another boundary. They added another layer. They said, well, fine, then we won't even touch it. They could have sat there and played with the fruit. They could have thrown it back and forth. They could have played baseball with it. They could have sat underneath that tree and taken a nap. All they were told not to do was to eat it. But then they put this extra little layer around it. And as you're going to see here in a moment, she touches it and nothing happens. Why? Because she didn't violate God's boundary yet. She violated her own. And in that moment, when she touched it and nothing happened, I know she believed, I guess this whole thing is just a load. I guess this whole thing's just a lie. I touched it and nothing bad happened. It's because she violated her own boundary. And here is what I think. I think the church has done this. And But instead of a tree, it's the world. The world is our tree. God says, hey, don't let the world get in you. And we go, oh, okay, well, then we won't even touch the world. If the world doesn't need to get in me, then I ain't even going anywhere near it. When God never said we weren't supposed to touch the world, he said, don't let the world infect you, but you are called to go and infect the world. And we have abandoned our mission and said, forget the world, we'll let them go to hell. I don't care, I've got my fire insurance. I've got my ticket to heaven punched, I'm good. And God said, I never called you to abandon post. I never called you to abandon the world. I just said, don't you dare let it get in you. Guard your heart. It goes on to say this, but God, but God said, you shall not eat of it lest you surely die. But the serpent said to the woman, this is verse four, you will not surely die. Listen to this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Listen to that, a delight to to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who ate with her and he ate. And when the and then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is how. Listen to me, don't miss this. This this blew my mind. This is how sin entered entered into the world. Notice how it happened. By faith They believed what the enemy said and by faith stepped into sin. That is why by faith in God, by faith in his son and his finished work on the cross, we can step back out of sin. We stepped into it by faith and we step out of it by faith. I'll take it a step further. Notice this. They stepped into sin by believing the enemy about what hung on a tree. We step out of sin by believing God about what hung on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree for you and I. I'll take it a step further. They believed the enemy about what hung on a tree and then took it in. When we believe God about what hung on a tree and we take Christ in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his enthronement. All of a sudden we find life again. The way we got ourselves into this mess is how God intended to get us out. We stepped into it by faith and we can step out of it by faith. You know what this tells me? It tells me that faith in and of itself is dangerous. Faith is dangerous because faith is only as safe as what it has been put in. They put their faith in the enemy and look where it got them. In a world of mess, in a world of hurt, in a world of isolation, in a world of condemnation because faith is only as safe as what it is placed in. And that is why God says to you tonight, put your faith in me. I'm the only place safe enough for your faith. Not only is faith only as safe as what it is, has been placed in, but faith is only as strong as what it's been placed in. Only God is the one sturdy enough to handle your faith. Only God is his plans, his ways. This book is the only thing strong and sturdy enough to handle the shakiest parts of you. And that's why God says, I don't need you dipping in and dipping out. I need you to go all in. I want all your faith right here because your faith is only as safe as what it's been placed in. And some people might say right now, Kenan, well, doesn't that make it that we're working for our salvation if we have to put our faith in God? I thought we weren't saved by our works. It sounds like we're having to work for it. The Bible says this in Romans, throw it up. This will be where we end. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, listen to this, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Notice this, this is what this verse is saying. God has given everybody enough faith to believe in him. You were born with faith on the inside of you. God made sure of it. So, even the faith you use to grab onto Him was given to you by Him. Here's the problem God has put faith in everyone, but not everyone has put their faith in God. God has put faith on the inside of everyone, but some people have misappropriated their faith. They put it in Buddha, they put it in Allah, they put it in their parents, they put it in dead old religion. They put it in their works. They put it in church attendance. They put it in scripture memorization. And it's no wonder you don't have faith to put in God because you've already given it to so so many other places. But God has made sure that everybody has faith enough to believe in him. And my, my heart tonight is to implore you to take the faith that God has already put in you and put it back in him. He's the only one safe enough for your faith. He's the only one strong enough for your faith. I know you've compromised. I know you've done wrong. I know you've messed up. I know you feel screwed up, jacked up, all, everything that you could list, everything you can imagine, I know you feel. And God says, that's why I've got grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not put your faith in me once you no longer need the grace. It's put your faith in me while you still need the grace. Put your faith in my grace that I'm big enough to cover the partying. I'm big enough to cover the track marks. I'm big enough to I'm big enough to cover the substances that are currently flowing through your veins. Listen to me. What you push into your veins does not trump the blood that flowed from his. It does it. What you have allowed to happen to your body does not trump what he allowed to happen to his body for you. It's enough. And all he's asking is for you to believe it. And right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, this is where I land the plane. If you would say, Keenan, I need to put my faith in the God who is already reaching out to me. Maybe you'd say, Keenan. I've, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I've kind of taken my eyes off the Lord. I've been putting my faith in, in other things. And you'd say, Keenan, I need to put my faith in Jesus again. Or maybe you would say, Keenan, I've never put my faith in Jesus and I'm ready to tonight. His death, his grace, his perfect sacrifice. If that's you tonight, whether it's for the first time or the first time in a long time, I just want you to lift your hand right now and I'm going to pray for you. Yes. Hands going up all over this place. Yes. I see those hands. Yes. Yes. There's a third group of people I want to pray for, though, who you would say, Keenan? I just need prayer for more faith. I love the Lord. I believe the Lord. But I need the Lord to begin to stoke faith inside of my heart. I don't believe him like I want to. I believe him, but I need him to help my unbelief. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you as well. You say, I just want more faith, Keenan. I want more faith. Amen. Hands going up all over this room. Would you leave your hand raised? I'm gonna pray for you right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person under the sound of my voice. Because Lord, I thank you that it's not their hand being raised, but it's their faith in your finished work on the cross that is, is crossing every T. It is dotting every I. It is wiping their sin away. It is making their the, what was once stained red. It is making, making it white as snow. And Lord, I thank you right now for a clean slate and a pure heart. Lord, I thank you right now, they are heaven ready, not because of anything that they've done, but because of everything you have done. Lord, I thank you. I just speak to those hearts that are asking for faith. And Lord, I thank you that you are stoking faith inside of their hearts, God. Fan to flame the faith that they have. Lord, I thank you that it will grow. Lord, if it's a small flame now, it'll grow into a wildfire. Lord, I thank you that they don't have to be satisfied with where they're at, that they can ask you for more and you will liberally give it, God. I'm asking you to give it now, God. Continue to put people in their life who build their faith. Continue to inspire them to get deep into the word and lead them into your word, God, so that your word can produce faith in their life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We thank you for it now. I thank you for every person that just said yes to you, that they're heaven ready, they're saved right here and right now. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody said, come on. Amen, come on. Can we put our hands together for what Jesus did tonight? Come on.